Attention all personnel. Incoming podcast. This is MASH Matters. Welcome to MASH Matters, the podcast celebrating the greatest television show of all time, hosted by two guys who love the show for completely different reasons. I am Ryan Patrick. I love the show because I grew up watching it. And this is Jeff Maxwell, who loves the show because he grew up acting on it. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Ryan. Yes, I did grow up acting on it. (laughs) And I really love the show because they paid me. It was great. There you go. (laughs) You pay me. I love you. I love you. Love you. Love you. Speaking of which, we will salute our Patreon patrons a little bit later on in the show. But first, we have a special guest with us today, Jeff. We do. A very special guest. This is going to be exciting, folks. So our guest, Gary Markowitz, has a particular distinction that nobody else on the show has. Not only did he write several episodes of MASH, but he is the only writer and the only guest that we've ever had on this podcast who is the stepson of Larry Gelbart. Yes. How about them potatoes? Yeah. Is that exciting or what? Now, you know, uh, this is going to be exciting to talk to one of the writers of MASH. And mm-hmm. like you said, he wrote several episodes, he even did one featuring a subject that had never, ever, ever been done on a television comedy. So mm-hmm. this is going to be very interesting stuff, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you're still out there. <laughs> and <laughs> and this is a kind of also a wonderful way to get a little picture of uh, of our hero, Larry Gelbart, uh, who unfortunately is no longer with us. But uh, boy, if uh, he was, we would love to have had him on this podcast. But this is kind of a little glimpse into the genius of Larry Gelbart and, and the genius of uh, Gary Markowitz, too, by golly. Yes, yes. And we thank Gary for spending some time with us. It's a very candid discussion. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to him. You're going to hear some things that you've never heard before. Yeah. Really, really fun episode. Hope you enjoy it. This is our conversation with Gary Markowitz. Well, let me ask you. I mean, I started out in show business. I was I was a goofy, funny kid. I wanted to be funny. I was engaged with funny, and I liked people who were funny and made me laugh. So it made me want to make people laugh. Were Were you a funny kid, or did you just sort of inherit it from Larry? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so growing up from age six in New York City, Larry was working on Sid Caesar's show of shows. Mm. So at my dinner table, many, many nights, you know, there was Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner and occasionally Woody Allen and these kinds of people. And so I was around that from a very, very early age. I was a huge fan of Carl and Mel and the 2000 year old man. Mm. I remember I memorized every single, I could do it, you know, from memory. (laughs) And then when we moved to England, so this was 1956 is when he married my mom. We moved to England in 63 because Larry's show, uh, Funny Thing Happened Way to the Forum, was opening in London. Mm-hmm. And I became a huge aficionado of a show that I just started at, started out and was just appearing weekly, which was Monty Python. <laughs> and there was also Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, you know. Mm-hmm. So I became a huge fan of British humor and the other the other part of it is that really cool memory is the Gelbart dinner table. We would have these, you know, even after we all moved out of the grew up and moved out of the house, we would meet for dinner at Larry, my mom's place, once a week. And the dinner table was just such a comedy combat. <laughs> yeah. And wow. you, you oh, had to wow. be careful what you said because it would be a straight line for somebody else to jump on. <laughs> right. Uh, right. 
<laughs> and it, it was fun. And my brothers and sisters all very, very funny. Well, you know, your mother, I met her on the set. I think I was actually in a scene with her. We're playing mm-hmm. poker. Mm-hmm. And uh, I met her and she was delightful. She was very funny, too. She had me in stitches sitting there. She's hilarious. And she, she had, you know, she's not with us anymore. But uh, she had a big, big laugh. I mean, I remember that um, sitting in the audience in one of Larry's Broadway musicals, you could hear her laugh, <laughs> in, you know, all throughout the theater. Yeah. You know? And that episode, the, the poker game, I wrote that episode. Yeah, Payday. Yeah, Payday. And uh, yeah, so we cast my mom in it. Yeah, you gave her some great lines. Yeah, she, she, it was typecasting. She was a tough old girl. <laughs> I owe the pot 50 bucks. Want me to lend you a hundred? Give it to me free and I'll marry you. Not if either one of us was the last man on earth. So I guess there was influence in your life and <laughs> growing up with other comedians and so forth. So, so that did really have a serious impact on you. Definitely. Before that, I mean, I guess there was no before. I mean, was there any sense of, a, well, you know, when I grow up, I want to be, a, you know, I want to be a heart surgeon or I'm going to be a fireman. Was there any of that anywhere along the line or was it always, hey, I, I can do this. I want to do this. I still want to be a fireman. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Love the helmet and the clothes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. On the back of a truck. You run into the women's house to save them. They love that. <laughs> be on a calendar. And no, I was a science geek. Hmm. And in fact, not to jump ahead too far in the chronology, yeah, I had no interest in show business, you know, writing comedy, although I did, you know, I was editor of my high school newspaper and, you know, and we put out a very funny, you know, and I was writing funny stuff, mm-hmm. but not with any intention of of doing it professionally. Uh, when I graduated from college at the American School in London, because we wound up staying there through my graduation in 1968, but when I graduated uh, from high school, I mean, when I graduated from high school in London, in 68, I was going to go to Carnegie Mellon, Carnegie Tech, and study mechanical engineering. Mm. But that never happened for a bunch of reasons. Were you living in London when Larry was involved in writing the MASH pilot? Yes. Hey, how'd that go? <laughs> what was that like? <laughs> it did not go well. Oh, yeah? Oh. <laughs> yeah. I've actually written about this. Um, wow. You know, based on what Larry has has told things I wasn't aware of, but he told me later. So Bill Self was the studio executive at Fox, right? Mm-hmm. And they had wrapped the movie MASH and he was down the set and the workmen were going to tear it all up and put it all away and get rid of it, right? Mm-hmm. And... The legend is, you know, one of the one of the workmen uh, said, you know, hey, why don't they just leave this up and make make it into a like a series or something? And supposedly Bill Self overheard them and stopped all the construction and went back to his office and said, get me Larry Gelbart. Wow. Yeah. And Larry, who, Larry was in London. Mm-hmm. And so what what happened was, you know, Larry was very, very busy. He was writing a lot of stuff. He was where he was. He was writing uh, for Marty Feldman, hmm. and he was he di- he did a movie with Peter Cook and Dudley Moore called The Wrong Box, and Peter Sellers was in that movie. Wow! So he was very very busy, and so one day he got a call from Bill Self in L.A. And Bill Self said, "How's it going? I don't, I don't mean to bug you, but you know, uh, are we going to see it soon? You know, it's been a while." <laughs> He says, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much done just putting the final touches on it. We'll get it to you in a minute. Well, he hadn't started yet. 
<laughs> and I mean, listen, you know, TV writers, uh-huh. producers, this, this is just standard operating procedure, you know? So he burned the midnight oil, you know, my mom made him tuna fish sandwiches or whatever, <laughs> and he banged it out. And then he hired somebody to fly it to Los Angeles because <laughs> he, you know, if he, if he tried to put it in the mail, obviously there was no internet, mm-hmm. you know, it would have been another week. Yeah. And he was saying, yeah, you'll have an enemy. So he actually, someone actually flew it to LA and, and, you know, maybe they dropped it off at the uh, mail office at 20th century Fox. <laughs> and they probably looked at it and said, how come there's no postage? On this? <laughs> <laughs> Where'd this come from? <laughs> Uh, so yeah, that's, that's how it was born. Holy cow. My goodness. That's a story. I've never heard that. Yeah. Well, you've done, uh, you know, I'm getting into your mash writing, but you've done a lot of writing going back to the the couple of shows that I really enjoyed Buffalo Bill starring Dabney Coleman, Mm -hmm. Phyllis starring Cloris Leachman. And, uh, you created a, a show fast track starring Keith Carradine. And, you know, there's a, there's lots of stuff. I won't go into your whole, uh, uh, resume. So anybody wants to know that, please Google Gary Markowitz, but did you write those with a partner or just yourself? If I'm, I don't want to be incorrect. Uh huh. Okay. Anyway, you wrote, you wrote, George, Payday, Some 38 Parallels, Margaret's Engagement, and Hot Lips is Back in Town. So you later, you know, wrote for a whole bunch of other shows. Was there a big difference in writing MASH versus other television shows? Um, Do you mind if I address this thing about my writing partner first? No, please. Okay, since you brought it up. So I worked with a writing partner. His name is John Regeary, lives in Zurich, Switzerland now. I met him at the American School in London in eighth grade when we were both there. And actually, John was one of these, just one of these funny, original, kind of crazy people, a really unique sense of humor. And I was actually very influenced by John. And after we graduated from college, John came to me and said, hey, Garrett, why don't we do this? Let's drive out to L.A. and see if we can sell a script to your stepdad. Mm. I said, that's the worst idea. <laughs> I, I am going to study mechanical engineering. I hate television. Oh, gosh. I hate corporate media. <laughs> you know, I was a serious radical. I was an you know, anti-war organizer and a massive hippie. Yeah. And I was like, no, man, I'm not going to go work for the establishment, you know, <laughs> but he prevailed and said, you know, he was very persuasive. He said, come on, it'll be fun. What the hell, you know, you can do that and go back to whatever you want to do. So we drove out and, and, you know, made our pitch. And that's a whole long story that you may want to hear before this is over. But um, he and I wrote either two or three episodes together, but then we had a falling out. And then I started writing solo. Well, that's, I mean, teams we've spoken to, uh, you know, a couple of the teams that were, that are on MASH or were on MASH. And, you know, that, that team dynamic is very interesting and some are successful and some go on, some split up. So it's a, it's an interesting dynamic to sit and write with somebody else. How do you do that? Who comes up with the jokes? Who comes up with the story? Who pipes? Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, who writes? Exactly. Um, the person, you know, at the keyboard has a lot of power and control. Yeah. Oh, that's not what I said. Well, I'm not just a stenographer to write 
understand what you just said. <laughs> I can change things, you know. So yeah, that that became a point of contention. And it's interesting because John and I have been friends, really close friends for many, many years. And it's just a different dynamic when you're okay, this is business now. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it's yeah. not, oh, we'll give you one and then we'll give me one and we'll give, you know, and I have to worry about your your feelings and maybe your line isn't as good as mine, but I'm not gonna make you know. No, it's the, the the best joke, the best line wins. Mm-hmm. You know? And gosh, you went into it with no, you know, writing experience as a team for a television show. Other than the fact that you uh, you know, grew up around all these very funny people, you didn't basically know what you were doing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you two guys as a team, it was a new yeah. new life, really. Oh, it was a completely new experience. Because of you know, my advanced age, <laughs> I would like to go back a little bit because it's hard for me to, th- I'm tr- sort of seeing everything in sequence and I'm, I'm a writer. So in my mind, things are structured a certain way. So let, let me tell you how John and I, what happened when John and I went to LA and how we got our first episode. And then I, I want to tell you how we tackled that first episode that we would sometimes manage to scam. Please okay. do. Yeah. Okay. So we showed up in LA and we talked to the producers, Gene Reynolds and Larry Gelbart, and it was, I think Burke Metcalf was in the meeting, and a couple of the other producers were in the room, and, and basically they said, okay, you know, we'll, we'll let you come and pitch some ideas, but no guarantees. Mm-hmm. And Larry, Larry was very, very worried about being accused of nepotism. Mm-hmm. And so he really wanted to make the bar as high as possible for us. So we went back to our grubby little motel room overlooking a freeway, <laughs> you know, with shag carpeting and two beanbags for furniture. That's where I live right now. So <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Excuse me. I'm really used to it I, all now. <laughs> freeway noise. It was very nice. The pool had no water in it, but it was still very nice. Um, so... We brainstormed for a couple of days, just really intensively. And we came up with 23 ideas. Oh, wow. And we thought, oh, this is, you know, hey, they got to say yes to one of these babies, right? <laughs> right. So we, we go into the meeting with all these producers and we start pitching these ideas. And it's like, the first one is like, meh, no. What else you got? Okay, we got this one. Mm, mm. No. What, what do you got next? Uh, no, uh, no, no, oh, no. Gosh. Oh gosh. Uh, uh, how many more do you have there? It's like, <laughs> well, we have quite a few, but yeah, but this meeting can't go on all day. <laughs> Why don't you just, you know, uh, give us a couple more and then let's call it a day. Oh. And we kind of walked out of there, oh. you know, like completely yeah. depressed and they were like, you know, thanks, but no thanks. And one of the producers, I forget who it was. I could look it up. He said to me, guys, don't come in with 23 fucking ideas. Come in with one idea, <laughs> maybe one in your, in your back pocket in case they've already done it or don't like it or whatever. So we thought, okay. We, and we said, look, can we come back one more time? Please, please, please. And they said, okay, fine. So we had another brainstorming session and we, we said, okay, we've got to nail this. So at the time there was this kind of competition between MASH and All in the Family and even Mary Tyler Moore, even Bob Newhart to a certain extent, but particularly with All in the Family and Norman Lear, who was a big buddy of Larry's. They'd worked together on the Bob Hope USO tour when they were young young guys, young friends. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of competition to see who could address certain societal issues. 
I mean, we, I tried to show my girlfriend, she was interested in, she'd never seen the Mary Tyler Moore show. She was too young. She was 80 and she was too young. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, she, she was too young. She's like, I don't get it. It's about a woman who's single and not married and has a job and is supporting herself. Yeah. And <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, at the time, that was really, really groundbreaking. I mean, this yeah. is, yes. you know, I mean, prehistoric, um, you know, uh, America. So we kind of went through all the issues and said, you know, okay, well, they're, you know, all the family normal. They, they do racism and they do this and they do what is the one subject that hasn't been done yet? And we, and we went through the list and it was homosexuality. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, bingo. This is a, and we did some research. This is a subject that has never been done on network TV. Mm-hmm. Might've been one that was done around the same time, a dramatic show. And so we cooked up a story about a soldier who comes in wounded and Hawkeye and Trapper realize that he's been beaten up. These are not war injuries. And then they try to get to the bottom of it and they find out that he's gay and he was beat up by his, by some people, some guys in his unit. And then the hijinks <laughs> begin from there. So we, we went in and we pitched it and they were like, okay, fine, go ahead. <laughs> and at the time, I think writing a script was maybe like $4,000 or $5,000. Mm-hmm. And the Writers Guild would kick in a thousand dollars. There was some, there was some program. So it cost them almost nothing for us to do this show. So they hired you to write the script based on your pitch. Yeah. Right. My goodness. Uh, I don't want to go back to the word nepotism, but do you think anybody had any feelings of pressure to work with you guys based on the fact, uh, you know, that Larry Gelbart's sitting there and I mean, I think the idea is incredible and I, I, you know, admire that and it should have been done and it was an incredible idea, but was there any, you think there was any pressure? I mean, I don't, I don't think so because like I said, you know, we, they said no to us yeah, and they had no compunction about saying no, thank you. Um, sent you back to that sleazy motel room. I think they were kind of snookered into doing the idea because they kind of felt like they had to because of the subject matter, not, not because. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then the good thing about writing is that we got very lucky with the first draft and it turned out pretty well. So Mm -hmm. they couldn't really criticize it. In fact, it turned out amazingly well, you know, considering we, we had no idea what we were doing. And then, (laughs) then we had the sophomore jinx when we did our second script, it was a mess. And we, we, it was terrible (laughs) until it got fixed up. Wow. Gosh. But as far as how, you know, you, the question you asked before was, you know, what it was like to write when we didn't know how to write or what the business was. There's kind of an interesting story around that. If you're interested. Oh yeah. Yes. So when, when John and I got the gig, uh, Larry's offices, Gene and Larry's offices, the MASH offices were in the old writer's building at 20th Century Fox. Do you know about the old writer's building? Yes. It's a very storied, storied building. It's this kind of um, gingerbread. I think it was maybe built for the Wizard of Oz or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it yeah. was really cool, old fairy tale architecture. Yeah. Beautiful building. Really. Was. Beautiful, really cool building. And later it'd be, you know, Stephen Bochco was there and everybody was there after Larry. But um, in the attic of the old writer's building were these unused rooms that were like covered in dust. 
You know, there was like one or two rooms way up in the garret, you know, that had a window, you know, a dormer window to the outside. And and so John and I just kind of commandeered it and set up shop there. And we bribed the guard at the gate. We gave him a case of scotch. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a Hawkeye and Trapper. Yeah, really. A little bit, huh? Yeah. So we would just show up at the gate. He's like, oh, come on in. (laughs) You got your own drive-on pass. I think, okay, so that was, so what, the first season of Mesh was 72? Mm -hmm. Yes. And then this was 73. And so we were doing second season of Mesh. And so there was a whole season of 22 episodes uh, of Mesh for the first season. So John and I got a copy of every script and we would start with the first script. And, you know, of course we read them all, but then we would do something. We would have what we call joke practice. So we would pick one of the scripts out of the pile. One person would start reading the script until they would get to the, to an opportunity for the punchline or the funny line or the joke line and then stop and say, okay, can you come up with a line that's the same line or as good or better? <laughs> Yeah, we went through all the scripts and and just taught ourselves to write jokes. How about that? Wow. wow. Very, very clever. That's like going to a gym, yeah. to a comedy gym. That's great. Ryan, we should do that. Maybe we should. <laughs> <laughs> we should. It's we really- will go back and listen to the first 70 episodes of our podcast and, and go through line by line and say, how could have that been funnier? And then it'll be so much better for the next 70. I think there's an app for that. <laughs> it probably is. Yeah, you're right. I I want to just kind of touch back on the, the show. So the, the first episode you wrote was George. So you're dealing with homosexuality in the episode. First of all, that's pretty remarkable, uh, even in a drama. But this is, you know, quote, a comedy show. So to get the subject to deal with it is amazing. Was there a problem navigating, you know, that issue with CBS or Fox or anybody? Was there, was there pushback on it? There was. This, this, the, the, the plot of George this kid, George, comes into the camp. He lets Hawk and Trapper know that he's gay, you know, and, and he opens up about that. And then Frank finds out. Mm-hmm. And so Frank wants to get him kicked out of the army. And so, you know, that was kind of the, the, the storyline, you know, is how to thwart Frank. And so what we had written for the final scene was a scene where they get there in the swamp and they get Frank kind of drunk. And then they start talking about their past and they, and they're, they got, they got Frank to kind of open up about this weird uncle who, you know, had a lot of muscles <laughs> and come and visit <laughs> the house. And we, we, we kind of danced kind of very gingerly and it's like, Oh, he had this tattoo on his bicep. I'll never forget it. You know? <laughs> so there was kind of this hint of, Hmm, you know, maybe, maybe you have a little bit of a <laughs> question about your own sexuality. Maybe that, that's what you're, that's why you're making such a big deal about this, which we really thought was kind of the right attitude. Homophobia. Yeah. A lot of homophobia is this idea of, you know, of people having repressed feelings, you know, for the same sex. And that's why they're so, and we see it a lot, you know, that's why they come out and, and politicians particularly uh, make a big show of how anti-gay they are. So when we got the rewrite back, it had been drastically changed. Mm. That was all gone. Mm. What they came up with, it was Larry Marks was the other producer at the time. Yeah. Larry Marks, fat Larry, great guy. And, and by the way, it was Larry. It was Larry Marks who would come to us and said, "Guys, come come back with one idea." It's Larry Marks. 
So what they came up with was that they get Frank, sort of the same scene, but they instead of that, they get Frank to admit that he had cheated on his exams in medical school. And then they go, aha, mm-hmm. see, we all you have something in your past that you're not proud of. Mm-hmm. So we went to Larry and Larry and Larry, Larry Marks. I don't know if Gene Reynolds was in this conversation or not. I said, guys, this is, <laughs> this is no good. It was very hard to do that, as hmm. you can imagine. Boy, you know? That's scary. Yeah. Yeah. Your first script. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe we weren't that strong about it. I'm like, gosh, really? I mean, do you really want to say that homosexuality is something that's in our past that we want to cover up? And, da, 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 da? and they said, look, we got a lot of pushback from CBS and this is what we had to come up with. And I mean, in the, in the little movie that I wrote about this, I kind of replay the scene. I embellished it a little bit. And the embellishment was that, you know, that we cornered Larry at the commissary and he said, you know, guys, you're right. Okay. You know what? We'll put the original ending back, except that we already shot it this morning. (laughs) (laughs) So enjoy your cheeseburger at the commissary. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I guess that ended that. Yeah. What a system and what an experience to have going through that. I, I'm amazed when I hear just the, the human experiences of everybody, the actors, the writers, everybody that was involved with the show and just at the business of making a television show. These are all very powerful experiences that we all have as humans. And uh, certainly you and your partner had the experience of, you know, pumping up and learning how to write jokes and creating a script. And then having that experience of, of getting people to say, okay, we'll buy the script and we'll give you money for it. And then having the experience of having a network say, well, you we can't do that. Right? You're not going to do that. And then, you know, having the experience you just described saying, well, well no, we'll do it, but <laughs> not now because it's already been shot. You know, where do you go in your head? I mean, that's just all, I guess that's just life, you know, whether it's a television show or you're working somewhere else. Those are just life experiences. Well, I want to add to your list of the realities of TV production is hearing the actors say your lines for the first time. Mm-hmm. Is you know, you've been in this little room agonizing, crossing things out. And then, you know, you know, Larry would send back our pages, you know, with stuff crossed out and, you know, blue ink all over it. <laughs> but, you know, there's this incredible pressure that when that script hits the table for the table read, you're pretty naked and they open it up and they start in line one. And then it's like, okay, is Alan Alda Mm going to be okay? Is Larry Linville, you know, is McLean Stevenson, are they going to say these lines and go, okay. Or go like, what, are you kidding me? I can't say this line. (laughs) Yikes. There's this huge, huge, huge pressure to get the job done and do it right and do it properly. And, And Larry had set a very high bar, a very high standard. And we, that's the level that we were aiming at. And, you know, we had to, it's like, if you're going to play in this league, you got to play above the rim or don't show up. Then there's the pleasure of hearing your words spoken by these amazing actors, you know, and that's a great experience. Is that pressure different when you're writing as a team, as opposed to when you were writing scripts by yourself? I don't think so because, you know, Larry, you know, was not just my stepfather, but he was my mentor. And after his stint at MASH ended, I had already had a couple of other jobs after MASH. Uh, John and I were kind of the hot writing team. We were like 22, 23 years old. So it's like, oh, Hollywood loves youth, right? Mm -hmm. So I'd already had a little experience outside of MASH after MASH. 
And so Larry and I started writing together. And we we did a TV series together called The United States with Bo Bridges and Helen Shaver. Hmm. We wrote 20, 22 episodes for that. It was canceled after the first season. And Larry and I actually went on to write a number of scripts together, movies, te- television series. We did Fast Track. Larry was also involved with that Keith Carradine show for Showtime that you mentioned. And so I really, when we were when we were doing United States, which is about the state of being united, which was our take on Ingmar Bergman's scenes from marriage. I mean, it was literally a ripoff of Ingmar Bergman's <laughs> scenes from marriage, which HBO is now doing scenes from marriage. Is this a scoop? Is this a scoop? Can we say this is a scoop? <laughs> <laughs> we were there first. <laughs> so, you know, now Larry and I are writing. I mean, we had Tom Whedon, a wonderful writer from who was the head writer of the electric company years before. I mean, he was helping us also, but it was basically Larry and me and, and Tom to a certain degree. But the way that Larry and I were working was that we had these crummy offices, you know, in the slums of Beverly Hills. <laughs> and my office was next to his. And my job was to bang out a first draft, just a raw draft. And I would, you know, we would write on yellow legal pads, which I kind of miss actually. And I would write a page and I would slip it under the door and Larry would take it. And then it would come back in 15 minutes or 20 minutes with his blue <laughs> scribblings <laughs> and crossing out and saying, no, and go do this. And, da, da, da. and so I was always like, damn all this blue ink. I'm going to show him. And so I had this really strong motivation to limit the amount of blue ink that would come back. <laughs> and so I kind of, I mean, I never, it always came. I mean, I could never, Larry could always improve anything anybody did. Yeah. Larry was one of the, these rare, unique writers, you know, and, and uh, I mean, like the, like the Babe Ruth of comedy, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, um, just one of these extraordinary people that comes along and very, very rare. I mean, when Larry was still at Fairfax High and he was writing for Duffy's Tavern, which was a radio show, which is a very popular at the time, and, mm-hmm. you know, he was still in high school when he was making money writing as, as a comedy writer. Wow. Neil Simon, Doc Simon, he wrote a play called Laughter on the 23rd Floor, which is about the writer's room at the Caesar Hour with Doc Simon, Neil Simon, Mel Brooks, and Carl Reiner. Uh, Woody Allen was there for a little bit and a bunch of other very talented writers. But Neil Simon credits Larry with being, you know, the fastest gun in the room. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I certainly watched it happen. <laughs> Alan Alda tells this story quite a bit. Do you know the one where where when Alda took over the show and he would find himself in a situation where a scene wasn't working or wasn't funny? He said, I would look for that spot on the wall that Gelbart used to look at. Oh, (laughs) I I could find it and get the answer there. Uh, A little spot on the wall. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. You know, Gary, we've talked to a lot of people and everybody has such wonderful things to say about Larry Gelbart. To me, he's on the Mount Rushmore of comedy writers. And uh, I mean, even Aaron Sorkin not too long ago uh, came out and said, you know, everything good that's happened on TV follows in the footprints of Larry Gelbart. Wow. Yeah. But all of these people we've talked to. call him and get a job. All of these people we've talked to, though, they were not raised by Larry, you know, Um, so you were his stepson. Was that dynamic when you're writing with him? Was that dynamic any different or were you and he able to separate stepfather and stepson as opposed to writing partners? That's a really good question. That's a really good question. Um, Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in there. Uh, (laughs) um, the, The good part 
was that Larry was such a consummate professional. And when the two of us were in a room breaking stories or writing dialogue, whatever it was we were doing, or just brainstorming, he was completely egoless, completely egoless. I mean, once the clock started or whatever, you know, everything else vanished. Any other family dramas that were going on completely went away. And it wasn't just with me. I would see Larry do this with other people. He's very generous. It's almost like a Japanese tea ceremony where you, you know, you know, okay, this is my space. That is your, I acknowledge you. Um, this is how it works. You know, there was, it was kind of a, almost a ceremonial politeness about it. And he was very gracious and, and never made me feel like, you know, the junior partner. But I saw him do that with other other writers as well, where he would just uh, accept them as if they were on his own level. Wow! I mean, we did have some, we did have a few run-ins um, when we were doing United States. He actually fired me. Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> oh, that's a- yeah, but uh, but he, you know, he, he he took me back like a week later. Okay. Yeah. But the the issue was about production, never about writing. Mm-hmm. Never by writing. I'll, I'll say, you know, Larry, I'll just say it. You know, Larry was not a great producer in, in terms of running, uh, managing a team of people. That's why he had Gene Reynolds, mm-hmm. who was the best at that. Mm-hmm. You know, it was not Larry's forte. And it was, mo- it was really because he was just very non-confrontational. I mean, you have to be, r- you know, you have to be rough and you have to be rigorous and say, look, you're not working. You know, this this actor has to be recast, you know, I'm sorry. Um, you know, the PR guy is showing up drunk on the set and not doing his job. It's like, we got to fire this guy, but he was a friend of, you know, so Larry is a friend of Larry's and he couldn't fire this guy. And so all the, the conflict that Larry and I had were really about the production. Once we entered the writing space, it was never an issue. Well, uh, Gene Reynolds and Larry Gobart were such an incredible team because Gene Reynolds was such an elegant kind of producer uh, who could manage these, you know, high wattage people sitting on that set very, very well and and still keep that show running and keep it as uh, high level as it was. That was an amazing, he was an amazing guy as well. He was an amazing guy. Yeah. He, he had a wonderful kind of voice and way of just very calm and soothing and rational. I mean, I was critical of Gene's influence on the show in, in some ways. And, and when we go back and look at, especially the early episodes, you know, you see that it was a far cry from Robert Altman. And this, this was Gene Reynolds had just come from room 222. And back in, the, in those days, I mean, there were very few single camera shows to begin with. And so the shows that were being shot in the Universal lot, especially, it was all about wham, bam, thank you, man. I was just grind out the sausage as fast as you can. And that means bright lighting. And that means a stationary camera. Nothing like the filmmaking that we see today, which is a shame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I had wished I was more a fan of the of, of the movie and the look and feel and attitude of the movie. And I felt that if Larry, I wish that it had been more Larry's vision than than Gene's vision. Of course, you know Gene, very great guy. Larry couldn't have done it without him. All props to Gene Reynolds. You know I love Gene, but if you look at some of the later episodes that Larry directed, you see they're very much more filmic. Interesting. That's uh, I've never heard that before. Wow. So if you if you had mash in your hands now and you could sort of run with it, you would sort of start there and start back to that the the feeling of the original film. I have been tinkering with um, 
a mash reboot and I was just kind of toying with it and kind of imagining what it might look like and going back to the original movie, which I'm a huge fan of, by the way, I, I, I can still watch it. I mean, you'd think I'd be sick of the word mash. <laughs> yeah, really? <laughs> you'd think I'd be, I would hate asterisks. For the rest of <laughs> I am. Hey, aren't those hard to type when you're typing mash? Doesn't that no, drive you crazy? Well, yeah. But if you think about it, look, I mean, if you did a suit today that was a sequel, you know, a reboot, everyone call it MASH, I mean, it wouldn't have a laugh track. Mm-hmm. The laugh track killed Larry and he fought and fought and fought and fought and never managed to get rid of it. I mean, there was a huge impediment to the kind of writing you could do and the kind of stories you can tell and the look and feel and mood of the show. Mm-hmm. And also laugh track came from three camera live comedy shows, right? With a live audience. Right. And when they would do a re okay, they'd say, okay, let's retake that scene. You know, somebody flubbed the line and then they would run the scene again. Well, the audience already heard the joke, so they don't laugh mm-hmm. at all or as much as the first time that they played it. So that's why they had to fill in those gaps. And that's how the laugh machine was born. But with the camera show, where are these laughs coming from? The, right. Where's the audience? Are they are they like people in the bushes? You know, like, <laughs> right. Laughing? And, and then it was also, you know, Larry pointed out, you know, these laughs had been recorded so many years ago that we were hearing the laughs of dead people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So that would be one huge advantage. There was also censorship. Every word of every page had to pass the, the censor uh, because of, you know, they call it program practices, you know, and I, I think I'm getting this right. Larry told me the story that a uh, script came back and they said, um, you can't say this word. Like, we can't say virgin. <laughs> no. Why not? Well, because when you think of virgin, you think of sex and, you know, you, you think about it suggesting the act of sex. And it goes, <laughs> anyway, he lost, he lost that fight, but then he went back and he would write, put it in lines like, say, where are you from? Oh, I was born in the Virgin Islands. Yeah. <laughs> Genius. <laughs> I love that. That's great. So just imagine the freedom you would have today. Yeah. You know? And think what Private Igor or the food server could do now. I mean, he could be anybody. He could just be crazy. You know, you ought to think about that. I want to talk to you about that, uh, Gary, about what the food server could do in 2021. <laughs> Yes, we're going to reboot the food server. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Hey, I like the title, the food yeah. server. Okay. Yeah. With asterisks. And I was thinking about a reboot, and I think Disney should do one because they own the rights now. Yeah. It occurred to me that, again, this is 1972. There really were no, I mean, they, they had a black surgeon for the first season, but he really wasn't cutting it. No, no pun intended or cheap. <laughs> Wasn't that uh, uh, brought about by the fact that they claimed or somebody said that there were no black surgeons in the army? There were time. no black surgeons. Right. So that was why they, I guess, decided. I, I, mean, I think that might have been the one of the reasons. I think also the actor that they had was just really not very good. Mm. So I think we would have to work in, we would have to fudge it a little bit and bring in some more multi-ethnic characters. I mean, there really weren't any stories about Korean people or mm-hmm. families, you know, and I think given the 21st century sensibilities, you would really have to have, you know, women and Asian people and people from other ethnicities in, you'd have to bring them into the show, I think. So uh, are you doing that? 
I can't talk too much about it. Okay. Um, okay. You know, anybody who's listening to this, if they want to uh, suggest <laughs> to programming at Disney, you know, that they want to mash reboot, they're free to do so. <laughs> okay. I'm not telling him to do it. Should they mention your name? No. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> That's great. Well, we, we have, uh, you know, we always ask everybody, and I certainly have to ask you this. You are such a, you know, an important part of this tapestry of MASH. And so the, our show is called MASH Matters and because we think it does. And uh, do you have any thoughts or ideas and suggestions or comments about why MASH Matters today in 2021? Well, here, here, here's how I see it. So MASH was on the air during the Vietnam War and MASH was an anti-war show, very anti-war. And it was airing while the Vietnam War was, was raging. And in fact, I heard an interview with um, Robert Altman. He was saying that really the movie MASH was about the war in Vietnam, but, but it was the war in Korea, obviously. But the scenes that you see in Seoul in the movie MASH, the people in the streets were wearing conical hats and that there were no conical straw hats in Korea during the Korean War. That's a Vietnamese thing. And so they deliberately put that in to suggest that this was, a, you know, to echo Vietnam and the Vietnam War. And I often wonder how much influence the TV show had on the war, because the American public began, began turning against the war more and more and more and more. And it became more and more unpopular and more unsupported. And I often wonder, you know, how much MASH might have shortened the list of names on that monument in Washington, D.C. Yeah, you know, we get so many people who write to us and uh, about how MASH impacted and changed their lives, not only emotionally, but in careers. People say, well, I became a doctor, I became a nurse, I became a cook <laughs> <Wow>. uh, <laughs> because of MASH. And so that kind of impact on humanity, uh, even saying, well, I'm going to become a nurse because of this, that's a serious life choice. And so all those things, the the issue you bring up about, you know, maybe it shortened the war and maybe it did this. I I, I guess probably MASH matters because all of those things are are encompassed in that idea, what it did to us all when we watched it and still and still remains today. The it still has an impact on people today. So it's so great to hear for me to hear because you know when you are there, I mean you were there. Know, when you're involved with the nuts and bolts and it's like okay you're prepping you know you're 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 prepping this you're prepping one show and you're writing another show and you're doing post production another show and you're just you know you don't think about the audience or the impact it might have on people it's just a job you know it's so great for me to hear that that people love it so much and and that it you know influence somebody to become a doctor or a nurse it's so cool it really did and i know Ryan's probably going to roll his eyes in the back of his head now, but I say this so many times, you know, for Ryan, it was an emotional relationship with the characters. For me, I worked there. And like you just said, it was a job. I was an actor guy. I wanted to make money. I wanted to do this. I wanted to have a career. And so I didn't have that emotional connection to it that a lot of people did. And all of the people who write to us and say, hey, it changed my life and it did this for me and that for me. But for me, it was like, yeah, yeah, well, you know, I got to get up. I got to be there at seven o'clock. I'm going to put it. You're exhausted. (laughs) 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 But now my own experience in doing the show 
and this podcast with Ryan to hear the the emotional impact that it really had is really moving to me. And I, I'm I'm not uh, you know expressing it brilliantly, but I, I I hope you share that as well because what you did really did impact people a great deal. Even the show, you know, George, my God, what an amazing thing to come out with a show that for the first time you know talked about gay bashing or you know homosexuality for gosh sake larry said that i should be on the west hollywood walk of fame (laughs) (laughs) well for all of our people listening in wisconsin please look that up on google (laughs) but so so thank you for doing what you've done and for the contributions that you've made to to this and we we really appreciate it that's very great yeah and as a lifelong mash fan i want to say i want to echo that and say thank you for all that you did for mash and uh, for writing. And especially, I want to thank you on behalf of all MASH fans. I want to thank you and your writing partner for giving us the line, Frank Burns eats worms. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. Can I tell you one more little anecdote? Yes, please do. So when we wrote our first script, because we didn't know what we were doing, I think it was good. There was something about just having the freedom to just go and not, not really know how hard it was. But the one joke that I put in was the one that kind of made our bones for, for that episode. And they kind of, you know, guaranteed us another, another assignment. So in George, Radar is giving Henry a little medical checkup, right? Yeah. You know, and we kind of had him holding his wrist and feeling his pulse in order to suggest that kind of male, male touching and closeness that the show was about, right? We were trying to echo the theme there of intimacy between between two guys. Mm-hmm. And then he, he sticks a little scope into Henry's ear and, and Radar goes, huh? And he goes, what? What do you see? And he looks, Radar looks and looks and says, I'm not sure. How's it look? I can't describe it. It's like... A little nativity scene. <laughs> I Larry loved that joke. <laughs> we really earned our stripes on that one. That's great. Oh, gosh. Well, Gary, I, we want to really thank you. We appreciate you spending time with us and uh, visiting with us on MASH Matters. I know everybody that's going to listen to this will love your stories and love your experiences. And uh, certainly we have. Mm-hmm. I just appreciate that, guys. We hope you had a good time. We hope it wasn't too painful. Talking about my favorite subject, MASH and me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And that was our great conversation with Gary Markowitz. Was that cool or what, Ryan? I I loved that. I loved talking to him. Uh, I loved hearing stories about, you know, Larry writing the MASH pilot and the original ending to the episode, George. I mean, things like this, Mm -hmm. you're not going to hear anywhere else right here on MASH Matters. And thank you to Gary for sharing these stories and these memories with us. It really does mean a lot to us. And Gary, if you have uh, nothing to do any uh, (laughs) weekend, please don't hesitate, uh, Come on back and visit us again because our MASH Matters is your MASH Matters, my friend. And MASH Matters is made possible by uh, support from our VIPs on Patreon, and we want to salute a few of them right now. A big Patreon salute to Private Greg Barnett. Private Monica Jane. Corporal Stephen E. Cohen. Corporal Madeline Stebbins. Captain Anita Jones. Major Joya Albee. Major Aaron Gilson. And Major Megan Bridget. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon. 
We cannot do this podcast and make these sound effects without you and your support. Thank you. You can also become a VIP and unlock some cool rewards. Just go to mashmatters.com slash support. I mean, we need the support because eventually the batteries are going to wear down on that machine and we're going to have to buy new batteries, right? Going to have to buy a new machine. We need a bigger machine. I'll tell you that right now. Help us upgrade our sound effects, ladies and gentlemen. Please. <laughs> As always, you can find us online, mashmatters.com. You can find us on Twitter, on YouTube, on Facebook, on Instagram. You can subscribe and listen to us on all of the major podcast players. Email us, mashmatterspodcast at gmail.com, and you can call and leave a voicemail under three minutes in length at 513-436-4077. You can even find us running from several security personnel as well in various areas. So if you're <laughs> into that kind of thing, come on, give chase. What the heck? Until next time, here's looking up your old address. <laughs> <laughs>